Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers is a Christian apologetics ministry led by Dr. Pat Zucran. Pat provides compelling messages from top apologetic scholars defending the Christian worldview and provides valuable resources for every person seeking answers to life's questions, as well as addressing key issues of our time. Serving to equip Christians who want to effectively engage their world for Christ is our focus. How early is the earliest historical reference to the resurrection? Historians and New Testament scholars are now conceding that the ancient creed from 1 Corinthians 15 may be dated to within three years of the resurrection. If this is true, the creed builds a very compelling case for the resurrection. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, our host, Pat, will be sharing from his weekly YouTube series, Question of the Week, where he discusses this ancient creed that closes the case for the resurrection. Aloha, and welcome to another episode of Question of the Week here with Honolulu Christian Church and Evidence and Answers. Well, we've been talking a lot about the resurrection for the last couple of weeks, and I want to spend today talking about some new evidence for the resurrection that has appeared in the last couple of decades. Now, many of us are familiar with the creed we find in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7. Paul states, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Well, we know that this is an ancient creed recited by the early Christians when they began preaching the gospel soon after the resurrection. Now, within the last few decades, however, scholars from all persuasions, atheists, skeptics, liberal, evangelical, have come to agree that this early creed of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-7 through 7, dates back to within three to five years of the cross, most likely earlier than that. Now, this conclusion that they have arrived at has significant implications and builds another powerful case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember, one of the key criteria historians look for when authenticating a historical event is this. Are there early eyewitness testimonies or historical references? Remember what we've been saying for the last couple of weeks. Historians agree it takes about two to three generations, 80 to 100 years, for legends to develop. The reason is the eyewitnesses who can verify your accounts as true or dismiss them as false need to die and pass away from the scene in order for misinformation or exaggerations or mythical elements to start creeping into the text. So if there are historical records that can be dated to within the first generation, you have a strong case for the historical authenticity of a particular event. Now, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, we have the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we can date to within 20 to 30 years of the cross. And if you include the book of Acts, then those four date to within about 20 to 30 years after the cross. And if you include Paul's letters now in the New Testament, that dates to within 
20 to 30 years after the cross. All right, so here you have several works that are written well in the lifetime of the first generation, well within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. And these, remember we stated, are early accounts written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. So the Gospels, the Book of Acts, Paul's letters build a strong case for the authenticity of the resurrection. But now we have a historical reference. We can date within a year of the cross, and this is exciting. Now, the passage of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, it opens with Paul saying, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So this creed precedes Paul. Okay? It's something that he says he received. And he writes pretty much the essence of the gospel here, the death, deity, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the core of the gospel, and this is that early creed that Christians were reciting well before the Apostle Paul. Now, in recent years, New Testament scholars and historians have studied this creed, and they've come to realize we can date this to within five years of the resurrection, most likely within a year of the resurrection. I would reasonably conclude that it's weeks after the resurrection. And this may be the earliest historical reference to the resurrection of Christ and the implications are significant. So first, let's take a look and answer the question, when did Paul receive this creed? Remember, historians say it takes about 80 to 100 years for legends to develop. Now, Paul and New Testament scholars agree on this one, wrote 1 Corinthians, all right? And he wrote it in about 56 AD. That's 25 years after the resurrection. When was Paul in Corinth? Well, he was there in 51 AD, and that date is undisputed. And Paul says, it was there at Corinth he delivered this gospel to them, which he received. Now, we know Paul was in Corinth in 51 AD because in Acts chapter 18, it says he was brought before a Roman proconsul named Gallio. Well, Roman records record that Roman proconsuls serve for one-year terms. And we know when Gallio served because we found the Roman inscription there at Delphi near the Temple of Apollo there in the country of Greece. And there's an inscription there called the Gallio inscription there, written by the Emperor Claudius, dating that Gallio served between 51 and 52 AD. Claudius writes here in this inscription of receiving advice on a subject from a proconsul named Gallio. And the Roman senator is reporting that he dismissed the charge that was brought up by the Jews against a person named Paul. So this date is so firmly established. It's really the linchpin from which we place other events of the New Testament here. So Paul preached this creed in 51 AD to the Corinthians, which he said he received. Now he received it much earlier than that. But 51 AD would be about perhaps 20 years using round numbers after the resurrection of Christ. That's pretty early. But we can date this creed even earlier. Paul says here that he received this creed. Now, when did he actually get it? Well, the majority of New Testament scholars have come now to agree that he got it within three to five years of the cross. All right? For example, Gerd Ludemann, he's an atheist professor of New Testament at Gottingham, Germany, right? Someone that would deny the miracles of the gospel and the resurrection. 
But he states this, he says, the elements in the tradition are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus, not later than three years. The formation of the appearance traditions mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 8 falls into the time between 30 and 33 CE. Robert Funk, a non-Christian scholar, one of the founders of the Jesus Seminar, and this group rejects 80% of the Gospels as mythical. All right? So here's another man who doesn't hold to the resurrection and the miracles of Christ, but he writes this, the conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead had already taken root by the time Paul was converted about 33 CE. On the assumption that Jesus died about 30 CE, the time for development was thus two to three years at the most. Here's another founder of the Jesus Seminar, and this man appears to have atheistic leanings here, probably holds to the naturalist worldview. Dr. John Dominic Crossan, another New Testament scholar here who rejects nearly 80% of the Gospels and the resurrection, but he says this, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, I hand it on to you as of first importance, which in turn I received. The most likely source and time for his reception of that tradition would have been Jerusalem in the early 30s. One of the most well-known critics of the New Testament is Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman writes that we could date this creed to within one year after the cross. That's how convincing the evidence is. Now, when did Paul receive this creed? Well, here's what New Testament scholars are saying. Paul came to faith in Christ. He had an encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road about one to two years after the resurrection. So we're using round numbers here. Let's say Christ was crucified in 30 AD. That would make the resurrection about 30 AD. So Paul came to faith in Christ somewhere around 31, 32 AD. But in Galatians chapter 1 verse 17, he said after that, he spent two years in Arabia and Damascus. So he went out there to the desert to reflect and think about all that he had studied and learned the scriptures that he knew so well and reflected on his encounter with Christ for two years. Then he says in verse 18 of Galatians chapter 1, after three years I went to Jerusalem and there I met with Peter and the other apostles. And most New Testament scholars agree this is the time that Paul received that creed. Alright, so that's within three years of the resurrection. Now Paul received it. Alright, who did he get it from? Well, he got it from the apostles, right? Who had been eyewitnesses, who had been preaching this already for three years. So it's most likely that they came up with the creed well within a year of the resurrection. And this creed is something that they passed on to other early disciples who then had to memorize it and then pass it on. So we can date this creed to within one year of the resurrection. That's why someone like Bart Ehrman, a critic of the New Testament, will concede that we can date this to within one year of the resurrection. Very early reference to the resurrection. Now, how does this compare with other historical works of religious leaders out there? Well, when it comes to Buddha, the earliest, the earliest biography we have of Buddha comes six to nine hundred years after the death of Buddha. 
And that's according to one of the great Buddhist scholars, Edward Conzi, who translated many of the earliest Buddhist scriptures. What about Muhammad? Well, Muhammad allegedly died in 632 AD. The earliest biography we have of Muhammad comes from a man named Ibn Ishaq, who wrote it in 765 AD. That's the earliest historical reference and biography we have of Muhammad. That's over 130 years after the life of Muhammad. Now, we don't have Ibn Ishaq's work. Really, the first biography we have of Muhammad comes from Ibn Hisham, who wrote in 833 AD. And that's about 200 years after the life of Muhammad. This really is the first written reference and work we have of Muhammad nearly 200 years later. And he wrote his biography in Iraq and Iran, hundreds of miles away from where Muhammad allegedly lived and many of the events happened. And he states he got much of his material from Ibn Ishaq, but most of the material from Ibn Ishaq he didn't trust. All right, so all that we know about Muhammad comes from the biography written by Ibn Hisham nearly 200 years after the life of Muhammad. Well, what about other historical figures that we know a lot about? For example, Alexander the Great. No one really doubts that he existed and accomplished really the incredible things that he accomplished. Very few, if any, historians would argue that. Well, according to historical records, Alexander the Great died in 323 BC there in Babylon. The earliest, the earliest biography we have is from Arian who wrote in 130 AD. That's about 450 years after the life of Alexander. The next one is from Plutarch, all right? and he wrote also in the second century AD. That's, so this is over 130 years after the life of Alexander, yet few historians would argue that he was not a historical figure, and many believe, most believe, that we do have an accurate historical record of the things that he accomplished in his life. Well, what about Tiberius Caesar? He is the Roman emperor who ruled during the time of Jesus. We've got some early historical records of him, all right? The earliest comes from Tacitus, who wrote between 110 and 120 AD. Now, that's about 80 years after the life of Tiberius Caesar. The next one is Suetonius, who wrote at the same time, okay? That's about 80 years after. The next one comes from Cassius who writes in 210 AD. Now that's about 170 years after the life of Tiberius Caesar. So if we believe in the historical authenticity and integrity of these records, how much more the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ, when we have a historical reference here, a creed that we can date to within a year of the resurrection, if not earlier. That's a powerful case for the resurrection. Let me give you an example, all right? Let's say that I claim to have written the most accurate biography of John F. Kennedy. And if I proclaimed, all right, now, today, 2021, that I have the most accurate biography of John F. Kennedy, and I write that after John F. Kennedy was shot, he was taken to Parkland Hospital there in Dallas where he was pronounced dead, right? He was placed in refrigeration there. Three days later, he rose from the dead. All right, and he was preaching at these big church, Prestonwood Baptist, First Baptist Dallas, preached in City Hall. Hundreds of people saw him, and after 40 days, 
he ascended to heaven. How long would my biography last? Probably not more than a day, all right? Because even 60 years after the fact, there are just too many historical records and witnesses who can verify my account as absolutely false. Suppose I preached this, suppose I took my biography one year after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Suppose I brought my biography to Dallas, Texas, where it actually happened, one year after the resurrection, and I began proclaiming my message. How long would I last there in the city of Dallas? Probably not more than 10 minutes till an angry mob would probably take me down from the podium and force me into a mental institution. In other words, if the resurrection was not true, the message that the disciples were preaching would not have lasted very long. There are just too many eyewitnesses, too many historical records that could verify their account as completely false and they wouldn't have lasted not very long preaching this kind of message. And this creed was proclaimed within a year of the resurrection, I believe, and I think we can reasonably conclude much earlier than that. So if the message of the resurrection wasn't true, it would not have lasted. And here we have a very early record, a very early historical testimony, an ancient creed. Hey, we can date to within a year of the resurrection. So the fact that this creed was around so early builds another compelling case for the resurrection of Christ. Well, we got a few minutes here. Let's uh, take some of your questions here that came in over the week. One says, Pat, how concerned should we be about the difference in details between the four gospel accounts? Well, shouldn't be too concerned, all right? Because even if, let's just say, even if we have some discrepancies, even if we do, does it deny that Jesus was a historical person? Does it prove he, did, he was not crucified? And does it prove that the tomb was not empty? No, they do not. These discrepancies are really minor in detail. How many angels were at the tomb? What time did the women arrive at the tomb? These details cannot dismiss the basic historical facts of the resurrection. Second of all, there are good explanations for many of the, quote, alleged contradictions in the Gospels, and especially those that surround the resurrection account. So even if, even if we could say there are some discrepancies here, and there's not any that are significant enough to dismiss the core facts that surround the ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at a few of these. For example, here's one. According to Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus said he would be in the tomb three days and three nights. Well, if he died on Friday and rose on Sunday, that's really one full day and two nights. So do we have an error here in the Bible? It's a reasonable explanation for that, all right? Three days and three nights is a Hebrew idiom, okay? It's a figure of speech referring to any part of three days and nights. So if Jesus died late Friday afternoon, that's one day. Saturday is day two. Then he rose on Sunday, all right, which is day three. So there you got three days, okay? Now, we know that's a Hebrew idiom, meaning any part of the day or night, because in Psalm 1, verse 2, the psalmist writes, On his law I meditate day and night. This doesn't mean 
that the psalmist meditates and studies the Bible 24 hours a day and never sleeps, you know, uh, that guy wouldn't be around much longer if he had that kind of lifestyle, right? That's an idiom there. Another one we can find is in Esther chapter 4, verse 16, where she asked the people of Israel to pray for her for three days and three nights before she goes before the king. But if you look at the story there, they begin praying on Friday and she goes before the king on Sunday. All right, so Jesus prophesied Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Matthew chapter 20, Matthew 26. He prophesied that he would rise on the third day. So Jesus cannot rise after three days. That would make him rise on the fourth day. He said he'd rise on the third day. So the phrase can be understood that Jesus was saying, within three days and within three nights, I will rise again. So Jesus died late Friday afternoon. Okay, that counts as one day. Saturday's in the tomb, and on Sunday, on the third day, then he rose from the dead. Now, here's another question here. How many angels were at the tomb? Matthew records that there's one angel. Luke says there were two angels at the tomb. John says it was Jesus at the tomb. So what's the answer here? Do we have a contradiction? Well, between Matthew and Luke, all right, is there one angel or two? Well, here's the answer. Where there are two, there must be one. <laughs> Where there are two, there must be one. Matthew states that there was one angel at the tomb because only one spoke to the women. Matthew doesn't say there was one and only one angel. Then you'd have a contradiction. But Matthew only records one because only one spoke with the women. Luke tells us there's two. All right, so where there's two, then there must be one. John says Jesus was at the tomb and spoke to Mary Magdalene. Well, what happened here? You've got to put all the Gospels together. The women went to the tomb. And the angel said to them, he's not here, he's risen. Go tell the disciples. They run and tell the disciples. Peter and John come running to the tomb. They find that it's empty and they go back. And the women come back. All right? They come back after Peter and John have departed. They also return back to the tomb and Mary Magdalene is weeping. And there she encounters the resurrected Jesus Christ. You don't have a contradiction. You, you need to understand the text correctly. And many times you need to put the text together and you get the full picture of what happened and it often answers the alleged contradiction. Here's the final one that we'll go through. It says here that in the Gospel of Mark, it says that Jesus was crucified in the third hour. John says, however, that Jesus was on trial in the sixth hour. So how can it be that Mark says he was crucified in the third hour, but John says on the sixth hour he was still in the trial? How is that possible? Well, you have to understand, Mark goes by Jewish time. John goes by Roman time. All right? Now, Mark follows Jewish time, which begins at sunrise, 6 a.m., while John follows Roman time, which begins at midnight. So, Mark says Jesus was crucified in the third hour, 6 a.m., the third hour would be 9 a.m., Jewish time. John says Jesus was on trial in the sixth hour, Roman time. So from midnight, the sixth hour would be 6 a.m. So Jesus was on trial at 6 a.m. And then early in the morning, he was sentenced to be crucified about 9 a.m. So there answers that another, quote, alleged contradiction in the Gospels. So when you put the Gospels together and you look in their context. Often, many of these alleged contradictions are indeed answered. Well, that's about all the time that we have. 
Remember, if you have any more questions, send them to me at pat at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat at evidenceandanswers.org. And you want to study more on this issue and others that I've covered, I encourage you to go to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidenceandanswers.org. And also, don't forget to hit the subscribe button or the like button here on the Honolulu Christian Church webpage or on my YouTube channel there. Uh, just type in Patrick Zucharin and you'll see my YouTube page there. And don't forget to subscribe and hit that like button so you can be updated on all that we do and all the new videos that come out. So thanks for being here with us. We look forward to seeing you again here on another episode of Question of the Week. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Oh,